from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School. Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, Studio Singular, looking out onto Locust Walk on a crisp but pretty January 2018, Wednesday morning. This is Caden Massey hosting this morning with the entire crew. Welcome back, Audie Weiner. Great to be back, although the cold weather has not been yeah, It's a welcoming treat. you. It says Philadelphia, Audie. Yeah, welcome back to Philadelphia. It, does, yeah. it says Arctic Philadelphia. <laughs> That's Audie Weiner back after a sabbatical in the fall. Glad to have him back in the fold. Shane Jensen is here. Yeah. Been doing yeoman's work all fall long. Glad to have oh, you. Oh, it's been a grind. No, it's been delightful, actually. <laughs> Talking sports for two hours. Yeah, no, no. This has been absolute challenge. rough. And Eric Bradlow, of course. Uh, thanks, just, Cade. Great just, to be here. Just across the way, this is Cade Massey. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination, ones, twos, threes, and this morning, four, some combination, are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. If you're listening, 8 to 10 Eastern AM, it's live. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us. Matt Datz, our producer, would take your email. He feeds them to us. We have been known to respond real-time live to an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also email us if you're listening one of the four or five times we're replayed over the course of the week. It's a good way to reach out between shows, between live shows. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at, Mon- at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle. We have an account that we, we follow sports analytics and the world of sports up there. We follow all of our guests. It's a good way to keep track of who our guests are. And we'd love to have you involved in that conversation as well. We're gonna, we, have, we have guests on the show, bottom of the hour, this hour, the top of next hour. Between now and then, open lines. Gentlemen, I'm curious, what has caught your eye here early 2018? What has caught your eye in the world of sports? Ha, ha, ha. Well, <laughs> I will announce. You, you, I'm curious from, from, from your vantage point. Well, as, as all of you uh, know in the room and our listeners, many who are long-time listeners would know I'm certainly a baseball guy more than a football guy. So coming back into the midst of major football has been uh, a shock or, 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 or a little bit high. <laughs> I thought you were going to try and bring up something baseball, even, no, though, even though zero has no, happened I will in not bring month. up baseball. But I, I, I just got back, so I'm still on somewhat. It takes me a long time to get over jet lag. It's been back five days. So I've been going to bed early. I tried desperately to stay up and watch the national championship. Good for you. And I failed. Wait, you mean the UCF game was on? (laughs) Very interesting. Really? (laughs) I do know you showed that in Israel? Wow. So I was here. That's Uh, well played, by the way. I was here on Monday night, and and I didn't make it to the whole game. So it was my shock to wake up in the morning to see that Alabama had won. You wouldn't be shocked if you'd been watching college football. You know, Atlanta lost the Super Bowl, too. I don't know if you fell asleep during that, but Atlanta lost the Super Bowl as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, they had every reason to fall asleep until the end. <laughs> but indeed, it was a shock to me. Now, tell me why I shouldn't have been surprised. If you've, what, I mean, this is their fifth national championship in the last nine years. I Alabama know. tends to figure out ways to win. Even in the middle of the game, it felt like as soon as, the, as, soon as they put in two, uh, as the second half started, it's like, oh, we know which way this is going. Now, of course, that, that it barely happened. So I'm exaggerating. But... Alabama has won a lot of games over the years that it just leaves this feeling of inevitability. Okay, so what would you have put the odds at after halftime? 
at the beginning the of the second half. The second half. Well, they, they, I mean, I was thinking about not watching the second half, but when oh. they put when they put Tua in, uh, you got to stick around to see what happens. And you really don't. I mean, no one's seen him play a meaningful down in college. But I, I know it's an oversimplification, but maybe to Adi's point, it takes two things to happen after the first half for Alabama to win the game. Number one is Alabama obviously has to score more than I think three points. It was thirteen to three at the half, or thirteen. No zero. Thirteen zero. Yeah. Okay. So they have and then they quickly right, went down twenty. Then. Right. So they have to do that. Then the second thing is they have to stop Georgia from yeah. scoring at all. So to me, the more surprising thing is not so much that Alabama, well, maybe it's surprising a guy who never really played a meaningful down was able to come in and lead them against a great defense. That's surprising. But also, why all of a sudden do these teams, like maybe it's adjustments on the part of Alabama, we should give Alabama their due, but Georgia stopped scoring. I mean, they stopped scoring. That's right. We could say the same thing about uh, Shane brought up the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, Atlanta in the fourth quarter stopped, stopped scoring. scoring. If they had kept scoring, yeah, the game would have been over. Like we can even debate. Our, that. Our, our, but our, I mean, these, I mean, but I'm saying two, two events have to happen. Yeah, I know. I, I just, I mean, somehow two touchdowns, a half to make up a two touchdown difference, just doesn't. Seems earth shattering to me, no. especially in college where you can do that in about thirty seconds—a two touchdown difference. So I, I, I guess I mean I, I, I read after you, you know I mean I watched the game and I was it was exciting, but I read afterwards that this was one of the greatest comebacks of all time, and all this I just don't you get, don't get it. it. I don't see it. I, I two touchdowns know. happens all the time. I mean, yeah, big stage, sure, but. I think so that, I so think that's you have fair, a, a that... probability. What would you have said it was at the at the mid at the uh, midpoint? With a so you really really don't know with the quarterback change without the quarterback change, to to Shane's point, I mean I think the the models would have so Alabama was favored by three coming in three and a half. No no no, trust me, it matters (laughs) three and a half. Well, I'm sure that depends on your line. I had never seen one at three, but okay, let's go ahead. Okay. But anyway, but um, but my point is that they they would have been favored. I mean, you probably would have adjusted towards Georgia based on the first half performance, and so you're. But there's so much variance. It's going to be I don't know. It's going to be seventy percent or something like that. I mean, I'm not very confident okay. about these numbers. But interesting. So uh, here's something that that I took away from from watching the game and then the conclusion. So in talking to to all of you, Cade, who has a, a model of football performance, you always talk about how the importance of the quarterback, and never in my life and my experience was that more prominent than this particular game, the importance right. of the quarterback. Because I was watching Hurts play, and he just didn't seem like he was doing a thing. Right. And now that could be a bad game. I'm not going to say what that means about him or it doesn't mean. But you take him out, you put someone else in, and the game just changes. And there's no other sport where that is so well, prominent and so important. Well, there is no other sport where there's a singular position, singular that, position that is that so that. important. Though, I mean, like, in football, again... Like I, I keep bringing this back to the NFL, but currently, if if you haven't been watching the last three or four Eagles games, if you have not sort oh, have of already seen examples of but, how important it's not a, it's quarterback not as dramatic. is, well, what it brought up to me though was it wasn't so much. Maybe this is the wrong way. I'd love to get your guys' opinion. It wasn't so much that let's call it Alabama's twenty-two is better than necessarily Georgia's twenty-two. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. What the better better teams have besides Nick Saban is. They've got another better 33. So Alabama has, if Jake Fromm goes down in that game, Georgia doesn't have a guy coming off the bench, probably. I'm just, I don't know this. Who's a five star recruit who can come in and do something? Alabama's got depth at every position. So when, when that change happened, I was thinking to myself, 
wow, Nick Saban's got two guys that can really play quarterback. And I'm thinking, it's it's more, from a statistical point of view, I was thinking, this is an argument for depth. It's an argument for having multiple routes towards victory. And Nick Saban, not just because of his recruiting, but because of his genius, his coaching ability, says, look, I can't win with the Hurts. I, I can't win with that route. But he has the players, and it can't be the first time Tua's ever seen the field, at least in practice. He must no, have he's, thought he's to, played some snaps right. as well. No, so they, they, he must they have thought of... to himself, I'm going to create multiple routes to winning in case this one doesn't work. That's what I thought after, when they brought him in. And, and but, but a lot of it is just talent. And, and But I'll give him credit for making the call. It was a gutsy call to make that change at halftime. But it goes beyond the quarterback. They had a freshman running back contributing hugely they had a freshman receiver making catches they had a freshman playing tackle and so it was it was throughout the system i think your point's very well made but it's even stronger perhaps than you know it's throughout the system that they have this ridiculous depth and it and it, i mean the recruiting is good because he's such a genius yeah, it's a positive but, feedback yeah. loop i kind of a rich but get only, richer type but not only situation. that you can make an argument we've talked about belichick for years yeah. you know and the, you know the quarterbacks they haven't been all great they, well he's developed many quarterbacks under brady who have gone on to at least start for other teams. Maybe one of the things Nick Saban does extraordinarily well, maybe one of the things Bill Belichick does extraordinarily well, is he develops depth. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't, I don't even just say put all his eggs in one basket. They have an ability and their coaching staff to realize we need two or three good players at every position. Redundancy matters, and eventually a player is going to reach the end of their ceiling or life cycle, and we need redundancy. But, but, and that's but, a coaching but, talent. Well, well I mean, the, the, the recognition of the need is not a coaching talent. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Every but, coach, but, everybody knows but that. One of, one of the things that they're able to do that perhaps no one else is able to do in college is, is recruit that kind of depth behind all the guys that they're behind. So most most five star guys want to go someplace where they're going to play. play. They're going to play. Tua's decision was seemed seemingly odd to come to Alabama. Q, Q, right. So he was the top quarterback yeah. recruit. The, 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 there was a lot of lot of um, uh, hullabaloo about him last year, but. That there are other players that play, you know they had linemen playing who who huge effective linemen who sat for two three years before they get to play. There aren't many. There are no other schools where players are willing to do that. I want to come back to Adi's point about the QB because it is stunning what kind of difference and it was an almost controlled experiment mm-hmm. uh, of the impact of the quarterback. And I think it raises it raises a number of interesting points. But one of them is the importance of being able to threaten offensively both passing and rushing. And we're going to hear from Salfino. We're going to, our guest at the bottom of the hour is Mike Salfino. He has a great article up on 538 about NFL teams rushing when there are eight men in the box or not. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is one level deeper than most fans pay attention. And this is about as deep as I go. I, don't, I, don't, I can't say much about, you know, the various schemes. But I have learned over time that, whether a defense is able to put eight guys in the box is one of the most important variables in the dynamic of what happens on the field. If a team is able to do that and not worry about what's going to happen on passing, they're going to cover it with simple schemes, man-on-man, that kind of thing, then good teams can shut can shut a rushing game down. And this is exactly what happened to Alabama in the first half. They were not worried about what Hurst was going to do. And so you right. didn't. Bo Scarborough's name didn't come up. In the first half of the Scarborough, Kimbrough, right? Scarborough. What position Kimbrough. does he play? What running back? Scarborough. Okay. Stunningly good running back. He, he right. crushes teams right and left, and we didn't hear his name until the second half. That's because Georgia said we're not going to worry about Hurts. 
We're going to put the minimum minimum necessary to cover the pass, and we're going to load up the box. Well, does that not relate to what we're seeing here in Philadelphia with a game coming up on Saturday? Where, absolutely. The, where yep. Nobody's that worried about Nick Foles beating them down the field. I mean, the betting lines have – I mean, I don't know Atlanta's how much we've talked – well, not just as Atlanta favored, but people are talking about this having been like an eight or nine point differential yeah. for Wentz versus Foles, which yeah. I'm pretty sure under the Massey Peabody line, you guys would give some, but it, there's no way it's eight or nine points. But I mean, it's the same dynamic we're seeing with the Eagles-Falcon game that's coming on here. Yeah. The other thing I want to ask, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you guys would, I'll, real quickly, I want, to, I want to emphasize what Eric said. Alabama's just categorically different from other teams. And and every year the same thing happens. They look a little bit shaky in one or two games or they don't play anybody and everybody loads loads up against Alabama. Alabama's not what they used to be. Alabama's overrated. They're not overrated. They're categorically different. They have a better coach, a better system, more talent. Categorically than any other. They just crushed Clemson two out of three years. Clemson is close. Georgia's close. But we saw Georgia, everything they did, as phenomenal a team as they had this year, they spotted them two touchdowns and still couldn't get it done. Alabama is a different animal, and people don't like it. Some people don't recognize it. They just are a different animal. They're going to be until Saban goes away. I have one. I, that was a little rant, but I have a question for you. It to refute this claim, please. I'm going to hear the various ways this claim can be refuted. It's about players making plays. You know, this guy came in, great player, made a play. Forget the Saban and the system. You got to have a great player. He makes a play, he gets it done. They win the championship. Okay, well, I, well, I, I mean, let, let me jump on this because it's something that that, that that I found very, very interesting. When you look at Hertz's record, he played two years. He's unbelievably successful. I think Twenty-five and two. Right. He has he has a bad first half. What, from an analytical point of view, you would never, uh, I think, you would never articulate the idea that you should take him out. Okay, but but they, but their prior, you're Bayesian. Their prior was negative on Hertz, especially mm-hmm. in these high against tough competition. There was a strong, lots of Alabama fans, lots of informed opinion believe that Tua should have been playing before Hertz. I mean, that 25 and two. I, I mean, like there's there was like four games against really good teams right, in there, okay. probably right. And clearly, too, is a much better passer, and that's what they needed yeah, at that right. point. That's right. Okay, but but I, but I don't believe what I claimed a minute ago, and yet it is one interpretation of what we saw. Well, so I want to hear how we how do we reconcile what looks to be individual contribution, individual you know making the difference. Whenever we we reify Saban and the system, and it's forty four guys, it's twenty two guys on the field at any given time, and so how do we reconcile those things when it looks like Tua just went in there and made a couple of amazing plays and got it done? Well, I mean, what, what's the denominator on how many potential amazing plays that you could make? And the coach kind of controls, or to the extent that a coach can control anything, he controls that denominator. He controls the number of opportunities you have to you make know, plays. You know, it almost reminds me, in your, your question, someone's when you know, during the baseball season, in homage to Adi, he's here, when Rick <laughs> Peterson talked about what his goals were in spring training for his pitchers, he said, let's say a pitcher throws 100 pitches in a game. His goal is maybe to make that pitcher better on two or three pitches because that's the amount of leverage there is in a game. Like you can lose a game by throwing two or three. He goes, I don't need you to be 20% better. I need you to be 2% better, 3% better on a small number of plays. But, so yeah, it, but it's the idea you don't know ahead of time which you don't know which ahead of time. You don't, too, so you, you got to make them all better. You don't know you don't know but, yeah, but I don't know that you need I don't know that you need to make them all better. For example, maybe this is another uh, this is more question. For a play to be successful, 
let's say, I don't need all 11 guys on the field necessarily to make a great play on a given play. So one way to think about it is if everybody's, let's call it epsilon better, 2% better, 3% better under Nick Saban, and you have 90, 100 plays in a football game, then, and you know, on any given play, we do a coin flip. Is this going to be the player that does something exceptional on his play, or is this going to be the player that does something exceptional? It would be interesting to simulate out, like, would you actually see some something observable, different, like how much better do you need to be, how many players need to be better for it to actually affect the outcome of the game. And is it, I mean, since in this hypothetical, is it actually more important to have, you know, a player or two make an exceptional play on that, or or, or do you want to control the other side? Do you want to sort of like, is good coaching all about making sure that there's not one or two players that are make a bad play. Well, not, not just that, that, but it relates to something Toddy has said over the last three and a half years, which is, let's, let's, I'm making, I'm not really making this up. Let's, you can do the large deviations theorem? I, well, so, well, no, I, maybe, you can tell me if that's what I'm saying. It's the only, it's one of the most important theorems in mathematics just, that actually applies. I was just going to say, well, let me just say what I was going to say, and then you can tell me if I am. Let's imagine we have 11 players on the field right now for the offense, okay? And let's imagine I have 11 standard deviations of goodness I can distribute on any play to those 11 players. Should I say each player performs one standard deviation better than their average on a play? Or would I rather have five players with 2.2 standard deviations better and the other six players at average? Like, if I could optimally distribute excellence... How would I opt? This goes back to yeah. Kate's point. If I want, is it just a guy making a play? So maybe that guy made a three standard deviation play and everybody else was average. How do I optimally distribute greatness for a play by, to be by, successful? Well, you throw not, like 10 standard deviations on the quarterback yeah, and right. then you throw like 0.1 standard yeah, deviations that's, on that's, everybody else. But, that's, but that's, note, that's the difference between, between the mathematical theory and, and reality. Real, real, real quickly, uh, I just me, want to say that, they, they, that what you've just described is more than a hypothetical. That's the question GMs face when they decide how to build their roster. Like, right. where, where do they put their money? Do they put yeah. it on the wide receiver? Do they stack it up, or do they evenly spread it out? But Audi is going to address this this large deviation. This is, this is a theorem. I mean, so w- there's a difference between, of course, what you're trying to do in expectation and what you're and, and when you're hoping for a rare event. So the large deviations theorem, as it applies here, is, is condition that you've had an unbelievable outcome. So assuming that's happened, what we call large deviation from expectation. Now you want to look at and figure out why did it happen. And there are a couple of ex- possible explanations. One could be the 11 standard deviation on one point, or was it just lots of small little ones that accumulated? And mathematically, in terms of probability, if you have ha- observed a large deviation, it's overwhelmingly likely it's happened because of lots of small little increments. Mm-hmm. It's almost zero chance that it was one giant deviation on one point. And that's, that speaks to what your observation. Does it really work in football when you have the quarterback, which is so yeah. much more well, important right. than the other? I mean, I assume there's right. probably some... Uh, Oh, like IID assumptions oh, underlying that, and obviously the, quarter, ID, of course. the quarterback is 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 you know it's a unique position, and and I mean we started off this whole discussion talking about how football is a unique sport because it's got this one sort of dominant position. And I don't think there's any sport like and, any and, of the major co- sports that are like that, and college even more so than pro. Yeah, that's right. Right. absolutely. Can, can I? So I wanted to 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 step back and say I don't think that the statement you made is necessarily wrong. The game was won because Tua made the place. When you stand back and you see that they've been, as you said, immediately said to me, they just won five championships out of nine, right? When you look at the reality that they've been there every single year, 
That's what makes it clear that there's something deeper going on. Right. This particular, if you had just watched this game and yeah. knew nothing about anything, both before and after, no priors, I'm not sure you would have. You could have the data to to differentiate between making the plays and being a, an unbelievable team. Fantastic. That sounds right. This is Wharton Moneyball. The whole crew is in this morning. Cade, Shan, Shane, Audie, and Eric. You can give us a ring. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. Open lines here in the first half hour, though. We only have a few minutes left. We've been talking college football and the title game, of course, for the first 20 minutes. What else, guys, in the last few minutes in this opening round? What else? What else is there? Oh, I had kind of an interesting experience over the weekend watching uh, NFL. I went to... um, Did you know that there is a Kansas City Chiefs bar in Philadelphia? Yes, I did. Yeah, Big Charlie's in South Philadelphia is rabidly... Kansas City Chiefs territory. Wow. I went to that. I watched the first half, thankfully, <laughs> of, of that game at, at this bar. And, I mean, you could barely get in there, awesome. for that, one well, thing. Well, well and done. people were going crazy. And I'm kind of glad I sought another bar to, at halftime because it probably Kinda. got really grim. Kinda. It really probably got grim there Yeah, that, that fan in the second is, half. Yeah. Well, just maybe related to that game because of who's now playing. One of the things I wanted to ask you guys is so we obviously have – um, the Jaguars, actually, it's slightly different. Jaguars are playing Pittsburgh this week. We know that. Is there any value in your prediction of who's going to win that game? They did play this year. They played this year in week five in Pittsburgh, and the Jaguars won that game 30-9. to Is there any value? Now, people like to argue storytelling. Well, now Pittsburgh's mad, and that's going to raise the probability they're going to win the game. They're not going to get caught off guard. On the other hand, we actually have an actual data point where they played this year. They were both fully healthy teams. No one was missing from either side. The Jaguars went into Pittsburgh and won 30-9 in Week 5. There's something to that. But how much... I'm just asking you, is it... Let's imagine you say right now Pittsburgh's a 7-point favorite, which might be similar to Massey Peabody. It's basically what the betting lines are. Does that data point make you want to move at all off minus seven or none well, whatsoever? Can, can, I, can I recharacterize that mathematically or slightly yeah. mathematically? When we build these models of, of, of projections of probability, Massey Peabody, lots of, lots of other ones that are out there, they tend to use a power score. You come up with a power score, and then the result, the probability of victory, is usually some function of a differential in the power score. What you're saying is that you have to have some kind of interaction. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, you do because uh, I mean, you know, certain teams match up, yeah, match up be- better or worse against other teams. And so the fact that Jacksonville beat Pittsburgh early this season is at least some amount of evidence that they match up well against Pittsburgh. I was just trying to get in a sense from you guys on the effect size. You know, I, I probably say that term oh. every week. We're here. On on Morton Moneyball, you know, because Cade talks about this. When we talk about Massey Peabody, we say, you know, the quarterback effect. Is it a point? Is it two points? How much is it? Is it a ha- how much is this worth? Like, how much is this interaction effect so the worth? Matchups in your, in your models, do you use matchups? Is that something that comes we, in? We, we, no, the answer is no. And it's because we've looked and we can't make it. We can't, we, but, but it's hard. I mean, it's obviously you don't have that many degrees of freedom. So yeah. It's really hard. But we've looked for things like, Matchups between particularly strong offenses and weak defenses, or good rush offenses against weak de- rush defenses, and we can't find anything that matters there. the pa- the The power ranking is, in many ways, as far as we can tell, especially given the degrees mm-hmm. of freedom we have, a sufficient statistic for for this. But Eric is is posing an interesting question, and I wouldn't I wouldn't say makes me move off the market line because I think the market line incorporates that real effect and or psychology already. But the, the question would be, if you've got a power ranking that says, you know, Pittsburgh at home is seven and a half better than 
Jacksonville, should you move that some if you've seen those two teams at full strength play each other? And I think the answer is, yeah, sure, because you know you're not going to have everything that matters in your model. Your model is necessarily going to be a simplification. You've observed them play. It was noisy. It's just one observation. But that's something. But I, maybe half a point, a point, point and a half. It's, not, it's not a huge move. Yeah, it's Three would, to one right now, Pittsburgh. Yeah, I would. I, mean, I would. I, would, I think there's something there, but it's not going to be huge. I mean, this, look, it's one game. These games are noisy, really noisy. So, by the way, we have a caller. We have a caller from Mississippi. I think. Uh, oh, it's Margie. Hey, Margie. Margie, welcome to the show. Hey, fellas, it's Margie from Mississippi, and I would like to talk about the national championship game for a second. Do it, please. You're from college football national championship country. Let's hear about it. Um, I like the observation um, and the question about was it the player or was it the Saban decision that really made that difference in that second half. And actually the um, the other observation I want to add to it is that my, I think it's more of a systemic um, change that made the difference. Because when you put the new quarterback in, not only did that player have to make the plays, but I think across the board, the defense played better. You get that 2% raise from everybody, or maybe 10% raise. The offensive line was playing better. The running back, everybody raised their game because they knew they had a new quarterback in there. So not only did the player have to make the plays, but I think because there was a systemic change in that quarterback position that everybody on the field on the Alabama side knew they had to up their game and they certainly did in the second half that's interesting margie i appreciate appreciate the phone call appreciate your hearing hearing from you it's been a little while don't be a stranger it's a great it's a great question it's an empirical question and the 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 strong claim is that increased optimism about your offensive team's performance increases the motivation effort performance of the defensive side well rather than call it optimism maybe a way to think about even no not even belief would be the offense, the best defense, right, is a good offense. So now Alabama's defense can be on the field fewer number of plays. That's just, I mean, you know, if your offense is controlling the ball, mm-hmm. you will have your defense will be on the field less. So from that point of view, you could make an argument that the defense, not that people aren't trying every play, but if I told you you're going to play 25 plays and a half versus 45 plays and a half, you might play differently on those 25 plays. And so there is no doubt an interaction effect in some sense, probably the greatest predictor. If I told you after the game, what's the greatest predictor? Obviously yards and all that's valuable. Just the fact of how many plays Alabama's offense had in the second half versus the first half would be a strong predictor that a lot was going right for them. And therefore, I like the concept of what Margie's talking about. The defense can just play differently, partially because they're just on the field less. I'm not going to call it momentum. Well, exhaustion's a real thing in football, as it turns out. I mean, your defense is on for the entire game. They are going to get tired. Okay, empirically, we could control for that. And I think the folks who would who would argue that this is an, a real dynamic, it's not just a, a a story, would say above and beyond the number of plays they have to be on the field. There's something extra that if I'm if I believe that I, I've got a quarterback who can win the game, I'm going to play differently than if I believe the quarterback is not up mm-hmm. to the test. Yeah. Now, so empirically, we should be able to control for the number of plays that are out there and and test that. 
Well, this is almost a psychological question. You're asking, it's totally a psychological question. Well, I mean, once you, once you start subsetting by, like, really good teams and, like, number of plays in a game, I, I'm not sure how what kind of how, how, what kind of sample size you're going to have for that empirical op- analysis. You have to but, operationalize, you know, what, what does it mean to actually, you know, under what conditions does the psychology of the defense actually right, change? Like, be right. very precise about that. Yeah. yeah you think so that they're pretty hard. motivated to do well yeah. on their very own. There, there's, there are other offensive-defensive interplays. So, for example, with the, with the spread teams, the air raid teams, the Texas Techs of the world. There, there is a belief out there, and I believe it's pretty well founded at this point in, 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 in among learned folks, that the defensive side of the ball of that kind of offense is, is um, impaired in some way. That you, that, and it's part, it has to do with how they practice, and there's, there's a belief that you kind of need to match. You can't play an Alabama-style defense with an, a Texas Tech-style offense. And, you know, it's just, I don't know all the subtleties here, but it's interesting that there would be such an interplay. And I can tell you that learned people believe that this and is And it's important. beyond just that with that particular type of offense, the defense is on the field more, et cetera. That. It's beyond that, that when they're, they're actually practicing, they're practicing against a spread offense. Right. Right. And Among other things. I think what scares a lot of people, Kate, is the point you just brought up, which is now people have said, all right, wait, wait a second. If this guy, Tua, is likely to be the starter next season— you're going to tell me Alabama's going to actually have an offense now? <laughs> yeah. And it's going to go with their defense? Like, how is anybody going to compete next oh season, God. which is why you see on everybody's, you know, way too early top 25. I mean, if anything, one might say Alabama should have an even larger delta because now they've got nothing wrong with Hurts, but now they've actually got a quarterback who seems like he can throw the ball. Like, imagine the Texas Tech-style offense on Alabama and their defense and the system and the talent. It's not looking good. I mean, no, I think no. the probability of Alabama at least being in the Final Four, not that it wasn't high already, just it has to be thought of as higher now than it was oh. before the first second half of the championship game. No question. And it's, I mean, it's it's it's, it's kind of a shame because there's going to be so much hype. You know, you can't end a season like that. It's just this perfect fodder for the hype machine. This is all we're going to hear about for the next nine months. Maybe in our last minute or two, can anyone give any opinion? You feel good, Kate, about UCF at number six? Like you, I'm, that I'm was fine. the AP. That was I'm you're fine, fine with, with that. UCF Remember his six. his model is is doesn't have interaction, so he doesn't care that he beat two top teams. It doesn't. Make no, a difference. I just want to say is that does that seem about right to you? Yeah, sure, that seemed about that's right. Higher, what do you think? You, you have them. You still think they're number one, Eric? That's a much higher than we have them. Yeah. So, so I thought. Let me just say the following. I wish they had an opportunity to show that they were number one. That's all I'm saying. Well, so th- th- let, me, let me one one last time on uh, the mo- model question. We asked this once early in the season, and, and I looked at it. We had going into the bowls, we had UCF like twenty three, right? I remember or something. we talked about this, yeah. But I looked at our prior, like when we started the season, where do we have UCF? And I it could have been lower this, but my memory is like seventy six or something. So our in season performance is quite high. And when you see that kind of change between your prior and your posterior, and you know that your model's imperfect, you know that it doesn't capture everything, you should have less confidence in your in your posterior. I just wish there were a way, re- realistically, well, to get from 76 to 5 or 3 or 1. 76 to 23 sounds great, but as you know, Kay, there's a lot of error in the middle of the distribution, and therefore UCF couldn't really have done much better. Like, there's no simulated path that we could have put for them in their games that would have gotten them in the Massey well, Peabody or anybody's system let me ask much you, greater yeah, than 23, straightforward given who they question. played. Straightforward mathematical question. What if you had used a flat prior or put them at a... Uh, yeah. What would they have been at the end? If, they, if you had started them off at 15, yeah. what w- would they have been at the end? Yeah, I, it's a, it is the right question. So another, we, we have a model, we have a version of our model where we don't use priors at all. 
it gets a little whacked. Then we have a hybrid where we use priors on the opponents, but not on the mm-hmm. teams, which is we consider it kind of the best look at true in-season performance. Truth is, I don't know what our answer is, but it's going to be top 10. For sure, that'll be top 10. Well, maybe number six. <laughs> but that's without any priors, and you guys are Bayesians. You're not going to say yeah. throw away all your priors. No, but we have to recognize that they're, they're noisy. Yeah, for sure. And and differently noisy for different teams, and we don't. that's one level more detail than we can have. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, rolling into the second quarter of the show. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, and Shane Jensen. That is all four collaborators, faculty members here who created this show coming up on four years ago. Somehow we're still here, still doing this, and you can join us. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or you can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall. We are we spent the entire first half, almost the entire first half, talking college football, which is a glorious thing, and the last chance I'll have until August, so um, we might as well indulge it. Talked a little NFL. We're going to come back at the end of the show and talk more NFL. Well, we're going to talk some now because we've got a guest in this next half hour, a friend of the show. He's been a guest co-host in studio with us. He's a longtime collaborator of Massey Peabody. Peabody. We're happy to have back Michael Selfino. Michael, good morning. Good morning, man. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you. Nice Pre- to be on the show. Appreciate you joining us. Are you calling from uh, North Jersey? Uh, yes, I am. I'm in, uh, I'm in Rutherford, just outside New York City. All right. So, we, we, um, need to, we need to arrange. I know it's not the shortest drive in the world. Parts of Jersey are quite close, but you still need to get back down here. We enjoy having you down here. Selfino is a guy who can talk about a wide range of sports. He writes on, especially on baseball and football. He writes also on fantasy. You can see his work in the Wall Street Journal, 538 these days, Yahoo. You can follow Michael. Where's Michael is at? I've just dropped. At Michael Salfino. At Michael Salfino. That's pretty easy. That's pretty easy. So, Michael, you know, I know you, real quick, let's revisit your allegiances. I, I think, if I remember correctly, and I do, that you're a Jets fan. So, no, yes, yes. What is the state hey, of the? Wear the, the green with pride. What is the state of the of the? Because they, <laughs> they don't. How are you guys holding up? And is there any hope? Uh, you know, I, I don't like. I, I really want Mayfield, and the um, uh, Jets general manager has been talking about how they need to focus on character in the draft, which is the code for we're not going to take Mayfield because. You know, they don't like the way this guy gestures, I guess. Oh, gosh. So, um, so he's out, you know, and I like the fact that Mayfield's YPA is like, what, like 11.5 or something ridiculous? Yeah. So I think the odds of him not being at least an average quarterback in the NFL are um, – uh, I'd be surprised if he wasn't at least average, mm-hmm. which I think – you know, when you're looking at the draft, I think that that the floor is really like what you should be focused on the most. As much as you could, kind of glean that from a person's you know performance on Saturdays, which doesn't really translate that well. well it's often, a, it, as you know, it's a Sunday, great, but but it's a great point because I mean I'm I'm no expert, and this is just an anecdote. But a couple of years ago, when 
the Jets drafted. Who was the quarterback out of West Virginia? Is Virginia, that Hackenberg? Virginia Tech? No, no, no. no. Geno, Geno Smith. Yeah, they, they Hackenberg, drafted. Hackenberg doesn't really even exist, I don't think. Right. Yes. <laughs> Tell but, that to his mother. But with Geno Smith, <laughs> if, you're, if you're worried about the floor, and if you're going to take a quarterback really high, you probably ought to worry some about the floor. That was that. That was a surprising pick. And again, just an anecdote. And and I'm no expert, but I liked your point. Your point is, if you're going to invest the resources, you have to invest at the top of the draft. You need to worry not just about expected performance, but but what's the worst case here? Okay. So by the way, Baker Mayfield, he's a mobile guy. In your observation around the NFL, does mobility matter more now than it used to? We watched Mariota had a, had a nice game the other day, using his legs some. Or I Cam mean, Newton's dominance, Cam, but Cam, yeah, right, undoubtedly. But when you see Cam Newton do it, he's such a he's such a different stature. It almost feels like it's not apples to apples. Yeah. He's such a freak. But Baker Mayfield is like an average sized guy. Marcus Mariota is a little bigger, but he's he's not a, he's not a big guy. And used to that kind of mobility didn't really play a role in NFL quarterbacks. I mean, Terry Bradshaw, good scrambler. Roger Staubach, good scrambler. But they're scrambling. They're not designed runs. Steve Young would have to be one right. that would say, and matter of fact, similar size to a Mariota, like in the yep. 6'2", yep. 220, 230 range, he would have to be the guy you think of as Hall of Fame quarterback who was a great passer and a very good runner. But is the NFL now adapting some of the college strategies where it kind of designed quarterback runs and they're figuring out how to be Russell Wilson and not take hits? And, and is that a bigger part of the of the playbook now in the NFL? And if so, does it put more of a premium on the Baker Mayfields of the world? Well, I think that basically, you know, what I'm looking for with a quarterback um, is just the ability to uh, use mobility to extend plays, not so much okay. to actually run. I think that that's like just too dangerous a way to operate in the NFL. And uh, my observation is that the scrambling, the running quarterbacks, not so much the, the scrambling quarterbacks, but the Cam Newton style of quarterback is uh, such a high-variance player that that's almost like what we're talking about, you know, in projecting like a, a prospect quarterback where um, it, I, I'd be most concerned with my quarterback play. I, I want that, that floor every week. I don't want to have to worry that, you know, maybe this is the um, great Cam Newton or maybe this is the Cam Newton that's going to cost me the game. Like, right. I, want, I want that narrow range of quarterback play where, you're, where he's always, like, between, like, you know, the 80th and 100th percentile of his ability, where where Newton is, is um, his range is so wide that I think that he can win you games, but he could cost you games as well. So, Michael, this is Eric Brother. I wanted to ask you, when you talk about extending plays, we've never asked a question, I've never asked anybody a question of this on Mon- Wharton Moneyball, is one of the things when we talk about, let's say, the greatness of Tom Brady, or maybe even the greatness of Ben Roethlisberger. You know, we would argue the two of the best quarterbacks certainly over the last ten years. Do you think age takes away your ability to extend plays? And is that one of the? Have you looked at this, or is that, do you know if anybody's looked at this? Is this one of the things that happens with age? Besides the fact that you may get injured more, you're less mobile. You just can't extend plays as long because of you know age takes that away from you. Well, anecdotally, what the what the coaches and the scouts say, and what I thought was really interesting in the ESPN article on the entire Patriots situation, um, because this was mentioned specifically, is that when a quarterback ages at a certain point, um, he tends to uh, make quicker decisions as opposed to waiting for plays to develop. Right. Um, and because there's just like the natural tendency to just protect his body, I think, a little bit more than maybe earlier in his career. And that was what the Patriots coaches, according to the ESPN article, were observing on tape. 
Right. Well, so, I mean, so the observation is natural that, that if you're going to survive that long, it's conditional on a certain set of skills. Yeah. And those are the ability to make good decisions, use your wisdom to overcome what you lack physically. So it's very hard to get a, a decent controlled experiment to right. figure out whether right. maybe, maybe part of Brady's robustness is that he was never a, was never never a, a person scrambler. who scrambled or, or, or extended plays through athleticism, basically. Mm-hmm. He extended plays through, like, in, you know, whatever kind of sixth sense in the pocket he has or whatever like that. And maybe that just ages a little bit better than some other things. Can, while we're talking about quarterbacks and aging, can I hear this group talk a little bit about Drew Brees and what he's doing? Oh, my goodness. It's fantastic. I mean, well, I mean... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been... I wrote it for 538 about how the, the thing that really nobody has talked about is the fact that New Orleans has this dominant running game and they face the uh, one of the lowest percentages in the league of eight in the box. And that was when we filtered out all the formations that would kind of, um, you know, minimize the defense responding that way. So we were looking only at, like, two wide receiver formations. Uh-huh. We, we tried to get rid of, like, down and distance and short yardage plays. Michael, so before... we tried to make it as pure as possible. Michael, and, we want to hear... I, we, let me jump in real quick. We want to hear more about that piece. Love the piece. But first, in case we have some listeners who don't understand, can you describe what eight in the box is? Oh, yeah, that's just like um, basically when you try to outnumber the offensive uh, formation at the line of scrimmage. So you have eight guys, they have seven blockers. That's usually like a way to um, take away the threat of the running game. Uh, now, the risk is with a lot of these plays that if they gash you, if they, if they manage to crease your eight-man front, there's nobody home, so you're really exposed to a long run that way. Right. But your play success is likely to be much better in terms of your run defense. And, 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 and your starting point was that better quarterbacks, better, off, better passing threats and better passing offenses face fewer eight eight in the box because teams aren't willing to take that risk. They're going to have to provide more protection in the back, more protection against the off, against the pass. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, like teams pretty much defenses from and this is something that started really with with Bill Belichick when it became when he was on the Giants with Bill Parcells. And when you go back to that first Super Bowl against the Bills, that was the textbook example of always choosing the slow death over the fast death. Well, Michael, that's so, what I, I wanted to ask you about that question because you just mentioned the risk of the eight-man in the box, which is, I'll use your words, Michael, if you get gashed, you could get gashed big. So in your study of the NFL, do teams worry about that? In some sense, you could say eight men in the box actually could be a high-risk strategy. 80 90% of the time it works and you stop the run, but the other time, if, it, if you, you know, someone breaks through, it's a big gain. So how do teams think about the trade-off between, if you'd like, as a statistician, the big mass at zero, but the small mass at a much larger number right now? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've always felt personally that, that I would prefer, like in fantasy football, uh, I don't really have an issue with my running back facing eight-man fronts because of that reason. Like I know that generally he's going to um, get stuffed much more frequently but the chances of the big player there. So it depends on the style of back that you're facing um, in that situation. I, I have no idea really how much teams um, factor that into their defensive strategy, but I do know that generally speaking, the more effective a running game, the more frequently you're going to see eight in the box. Like if you look at, say, like the Jaguars and the Panthers, where teams really aren't worried about the passing game as much, they're worried – 
more about Cam Newton as a runner than they are as a passer, seemingly. Um, that their, their eight in the box percentage is extremely high relative to, say, the Saints. Okay, so so one of the things, one of the reasons for this analysis in this article is to to is to better understand true true passing performance. I mean, you're basically saying all quarterbacks aren't facing similar situations because they have different um, different degrees of support from the run game. And if we really want to understand how a quarterback is doing as a passer, we need to kind of control for that. We need to norm that. So when you did the analysis, what did you learn about NFL quarterbacks? Well, what I learned is that, you know, one of the reasons why I think the, the Saints running game has been uh, so effective and historically productive um, with this two-man uh, committee, basically, is that they've been able to more or less run against neutral slash vanilla fronts because defensive gen- defenses generally are um, concerned with stacking the box because they fear Breeze. And the question was whether they fear Breeze because that's the way the Saints have played for so long in their history or whether they fear Breeze because he's still at the top of his game. And the data that we have, like, you know, pretty much anything that I think you would look at as well shows that Breeze statistically, as as we could best, like, objectively measure his performance, was still at the top of his game. So what I thought was really interesting in, in the game that followed against the Panthers, and the Panthers had given up their – two highest rushing yardage games uh, of the season to the Saints and the two previous losses is that the, Cardin- uh, the, the Panthers were basically intent on stopping the running game. And on that play to Ginn especially, which was a three-wide receiver formation, which is crazy, they, they had eight in the box on that play. And Ginn, you know, uh, Breeze went over the top of the defense and, and hit an, uh, again for that 80-yard touchdown, which is the textbook, textbook example of like why uh, coaches generally don't challenge a quarterback right. uh, that they fear that way. Right, right. So That's I, a I, quick death. I, I noticed, I think I noticed in your data that Matt Ryan has faced the fewest, he's number one in fewest eight-man yes. boxes, is that right? So that's, that's, that's a sign of regard the league has for him, him and his passing offense? Or is it because yeah, they, they think, don't? They don't worry. That, that's a fair. And the, but the thing is, their running game, while while it's effective, is not historically yeah. effective okay. so like the like the Saints was. But yes, that they, they would be the other team that would fit that that um, um, you know theory that that basically the the quarterback is really helping the running game. He's like um, uh, a, a big factor in the success of the running game of the team because. Uh, or, or just the passing game in general, because teams aren't really stacking the box against them. What, what, what? Have, along these lines, what have you learned about Dak Prescott this year? So Prescott, it's just stunning to see the stats of Prescott with and without Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, it's 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 stark. Do we do we not believe as much about Prescott as an NFL quarterback as we used to? I don't personally like, I, but I think you know. Um, in the things that I read, and this is like a discipline that I that I lack, like sort of instinctively, but I know that this is what you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to modify your your views of a player uh, gradually and not radically. <laughs> so well I'm done. trying to I'm trying to uh, assess my downward DAC in some measured, reasonable way, as opposed to being like, no, this guy's not going going to make it. So instead of thinking that that he was a um, 
uh, very good and likely to be great quarterback going forward. Now I'm thinking more that he's a good quarterback and likely to be very good quarterback going that, forward. That, that, I mean, intellectually. What I'm thinking in my in my you know is you know is, it takes a lot of discipline to actually do that. But I, you know, if I write it down, that's what I'm thinking. So, <laughs> how does that tension bear out with Nick Foles and the Eagles? Oh, Foles, man! You know that's the thing. Like the most underrated thing of the season is that the Eagles are were a total schoolyard offense. Like the Eagles' offense was pretty much, and you know this because you're like the 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 person who who puts the most stock into play success. The, the Eagles' offense was pretty much screw up first down, screw up second down, okay, once bail us out on third down, mm. and run around and make a play. And that's what he did, and he was amazing at it. I mean, their rate of convert, converting third and longs and just third downs, period, were uh, insane. And the problem is, like, Nick Foles isn't going to do that. So if you still stink on first and second down, and now it's third and seven. Foles is, like, pretty much dead. Like, he's not going to double the league average rate of converting those plays, like, basically, you know, Winston. So, so Michael, tell us, we're talking to Mike Salfino. Michael is a sports writer. He, he's been with a number of organizations over time. You can see his work at the Wall Street Journal, especially these days at 538. And you can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Salfino. The divisional round of playoff games do not look particularly interesting. The, the lines suggest as much. Oh, the Saints Vikings game, I think. Okay, Saints Vikings. That looks that looks that looks great. So, it, give yeah. us a take on give us a take on what you see transpiring over the next couple of weeks. How, who do you see end up in in the Super Bowl? Well, I, I mean, I guess the chalk is New England, um, but I really think that Pittsburgh has a chance because um, you know one of the stats that I look at is something you look at as well, um, uh, but but to me it's easier to just do because you could do it sort of like on the back of a napkin. Is, is net yards per pass attempt, mm-hmm. and usually teams that really are good at that, just get, you know gaining more yards per pass attempt or per pass play when you adjust for sacks and, and sack yards, um, minus what they allow. Those are usually it's usually a way to like sort of stack the teams up, and uh, and the Steelers are significantly better than the Patriots in that stat. Plus, you have the complicating factor with the Patriots, and I don't think it's going to come into play this week because the Titans are just so bad, but. Brady, you know, the article I'm working on 538 now is just 2017 Brady versus 2014 Manning. Like, I tend, I think we tend to think that um, each season is its, is its new thing, so we think that if a player declines, it has to be, like, at the start of the next season. But, but Manning actually declined late in the 2014 season precipitously, right. and it was attributed to, like, you know, a thigh injury, and don't worry, look at the full-season stats, he'll be back, he's still Peyton Manning, and then he was just, like, terrible from that wow. point forward. Wow, um, And Brady, if you stack him up that way this year, and he's two years older than Manning was that year, um, his performance is similar in collapsing, you know, when you compare games 1 to 11, to games 12 to 16. Now, normally we wouldn't do this, but what do you do when a guy's 40 years old? Right. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. And I think you, a lot tend, of wear you, you, te- you tend to take a half season's worth of games and, and, yeah. and, and read a lot into it is what one thing you do. I mean, does Brady like over, like, have there been other five game periods throughout Brady's career where he's shown similar performance to what he's shown over the last five games? Yes, that uh, when you did points above replacement, this was the third worst stretch since 2007. Um, uh, you know, so he has done this before, um, but 
you know, he went from in, – in 2014, Peyton Manning, his first 11 games, had 109.5 passer rating. Brady's is 111.7. Then games 12 to 16, Peyton was 78.7. Brady is 81.6. The YPA has gone from 8-plus uh, to both of those guys to actually a bigger decline, 6.95 for Brady to 7.54 for, for Peyton. You know, Brady's interceptions have spiked, just like Manning's did, tremendously. Um, the points actually uh, were masking it with Peyton. The Broncos were still scoring, um, and, and the Patriots' scoring has declined a little bit, but only like about three points per game. Michael, so Michael, can I, you jump I over? I think it's just an interesting question. Let's jump over to the NFC and get your thinking there, because that's in some ways a more interesting set of uh, games. Yeah, well, I think, like you said, I mean, the game that everybody's looking forward to is New Orleans and Minnesota. I mean, I think New Orleans is, is probably because their ability to play, like, left-handed, like, you know, in sort of coach speak, and, and that um, usually you could, you could judge a team's playoff uh, potential by their ability to, do, to still survive if the opponent, which is going to be a higher-quality opponent, manages to take away the thing that they want to do the most yeah and and uh, and the saints proved in their first game like the you know the panthers were just like well you're not going to run the ball down our throat we're sick of that and breeze is like okay well i'll just be old drew breeze and throw for like 350 yards right, and right. hit big plays all over the field michael so, we're gonna we're gonna have to hop uh think that's a that's a full half hour we could talk with you for the full two hours we appreciate your jumping on with us and spending some time with us we wish you the best with your work over the next few weeks as you wind down the NFL season. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thanks a lot, guys. You bet. Michael Salfino. You can follow Michael at Michael Salfino. You can see his work on 538. Fascinating piece recently on quarterback performance as a function of what kind of defense they face. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with the full crew, Eric, Adi, Shane. Everyone's here. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. If you're listening live, you can give us a ring, one eight four four wharton that's one 844 You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. It's a good way to find out what's going on, know who we're talking to, know what we're paying attention to over the course of the week. Just off the phone with Michael Salfino. Michael's a writer, football writer, baseball writer, fantasy sports writer for the Wall Street Journal and 538 these days. Rolling into the third quarter of the show, this is another guest segment. This In this half hour, we have Ian Levy. Ian is the senior NBA editor for Fansided.com. He's also the man behind the curtain at The Step Back and Nylon Calculus. All of these sites, all of this work is giving us some advanced analytics and some more insightful takes on the NBA. You can follow Ian on at Hickory High, at Hickory High, a Hoosiers reference. Ian Levy, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Delighted to have you, Ian. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, snowy Vermont. Snow, is, is there a part of Vermont that's not snowy? So where, where are you in Vermont, and how bad is it up there? 
Uh, it's actually not too bad. It's been pretty cold, not too much snow, but uh, I'm in the very uh, southeastern corner, um, right on the Connecticut River, just a few miles from the Massachusetts border. Got it, got it, got it. Well, it's a. it sounds like a pretty place to be. Ian, um, I have to say that I thoroughly enjoy your 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 work, and especially I, the part that usually jumps out to me are the are the data visualizations from Nylon Calculus. I don't know who, who all is responsible for those things, but that you guys do some beautiful work. Well, thank you. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got a very talented group of contributors, and <clears throat> everybody's kind of responsible for their own stuff. So. Uh, you know, some people are more artsy. We have a, a great guy, Todd Whitehead, who does a lot of original illustrations with his. His stuff's uh, really beautiful. But, uh, yeah, it's it's fun to find, uh, you know, find new engaging ways to, to take these insights and sort of turn them into stuff that's that's fun to look at, too. Can you tell us what you were doing before you got into this work and what led you to this advanced analytics work on basketball? Yeah, I uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I used to be an elementary school teacher, uh, so I don't really have a background in advanced math at all. Um, it didn't go uh, didn't go much beyond calculus in college, uh, but I um, was always really interested in basketball. Was always really interested in statistics. I was always reading a lot, and about like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Um, was reading uh, David Barry's work, The Wages of Wins, um, Wayne Winston. Um, you know, so kind of some of the early work and Henry Abbott at ESPN, that kind of led me to the uh, APBR Metrics Forum, uh, which is a great site if, if nobody's been there. It's a, um, an open forum for people to talk about basketball statistics, add questions. Um, a lot of the, the people, sort of the big pillars of this work on the basketball side sort of cut their teeth there um, doing public work. And, uh, yeah, so I just kind of taught myself, uh, you know, trying to, a lot of the early work was trying to answer questions. I'd be curious about why something was happening or how something was working on the court. And, um, you know, would just sort of have to, to dig into the numbers myself to kind of try and answer my own questions. It back seems then, like there were not nearly back then. There were not nearly as many people doing this work. So if you had, a, if you had a question, you probably had to answer it yourself. Now, you know, there's so many sites you can, you can probably find the answer somewhere. Yet you still keep on coming up with creative questions. So, you know, the the whole world of basketball analytics has advanced dramatically in the last, whatever, 10 years. And we do have some creative takes and creative stats, but yet there is still room for more. And so you've come up with a few that we'd like to hear more about. So, for example, drive true shot percentage. What is drive true shot percentage and, and why is it important? Yeah, so my my uh, my stats and and math skills are are uh, are not nearly as advanced as some of the other people we have at Nylon Calculus. So a lot of the stuff that I do is just sort of combining um, combining uh, statistical categories that are available publicly into you know kind of some new permutations. So drive true shot percentage is based on um, the the player tracking data that the NBA has public on their site. Uh, and so they have all these statistics for drives. So you can see how many times a player drove per game. A drive, uh, I believe, is still classified as any time a player is at least 20 feet from the basket and they dribble to within 10 feet of the basket. And then you can see um, you know how many shots they take, how many fr uh, free throws they draw off drives, how many times they pass, how many times they turn over. Um, and so I just thought it would be interesting to look at uh, who is using drives to create shots for themselves and who's using drives to create shots for their teammates. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, a true shot is um, 
you know, we considered basically just a scoring opportunity. So a true shot is either uh, a field goal attempt or uh, a trip to the free throw line. And I used the, the 0.44 standard free throw modifier. Um, and so you can see, you know, and I pulled my list together, you can see uh, TJ Warren of the Phoenix Suns. He had the highest number, 77% of his drives result in a shot attempt for himself. Uh, and Joe Ingles of the Utah Jazz was at the, the opposite end. Only 22% of his drives result in a shot for himself. Mm-hmm. So it was just an interesting way, I thought, to look at uh, people who are using the drive and to what end they're kind of using that drive. So this is Eric Bradley. I just want to ask you, so that's, it's an interesting measure. Um, have you found, number one, two questions. Number one, have you found that people are doing less of this? Because as you know, the three-point game is now a much bigger part of the game. That's one. Are you finding less drives? And number two, have you correlated that at all with winning? And how does that predict winning at all? Uh, it's a little bit hard on the on the offensive side. This is one of the things that I have found most fascinating the past couple of years. And with the, the proliferation of, of these player tracking statistics is we can sort of view style, uh, offensive style in ways that we, with data in ways that we couldn't, you know, maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, so drives themselves, I don't think are specifically correlated with offensive success or with, um, with winning overall. And one of the reasons why is that you can build an efficient offense in lots of different ways. Um, so one of the projects that I've done the past couple of years is I've looked at every team's offense on four stylistic indicators, uh, ball movement, uh, and the measure I use for that is um, average seconds per touch. So the shorter a touch time, uh, an average touch time a team has, the more they're sort of moving the ball from player to player. Um, player movement, which is uh, distance traveled per second of offensive possession. Uh, pace, which is the average length of a possession. And then um, I use a, a shot selection measure. It's had to change a few times because data hasn't been available. But basically, it's the percent of a team's uh, attempts that are either at the rim uh, or beyond the three-point line. And so you get a sense of, of which teams use player movement and ball movement to create efficient offenses, which teams use pace, which teams um, you know rely on uh, sort of generically efficient shot selection, or which teams you know have guys who can make difficult shots and do it well, you know, players like Kevin Durant or DeMar DeRozan, things like that. And the the big takeaway has been every year, the top five offenses, top six, seven, eight offenses, there's almost no stylistic similarities. You have teams like the Warriors, really up-tempo, really efficient shot selection, tons of player movement and ball movement. And then you've had teams like the Cavaliers or the Raptors the past few years. Clippers have been another example where there's very little player movement or ball movement generically. Shot selection, maybe they, they are comfortable taking more mid-range jumpers because they have players like you know Chris Paul who can do that well. Uh, and they don't necessarily play at an up-tempo pace. Uh, and so really when it comes to, to I think, winning and, and thinking about those kinds of things, it's about de- designing an offensive style or an offensive system that works for your players. You know, if you have Chris Paul, uh, you can play a certain kind of way, and you might not be able to play the same kind of way if your point guard is, um, I don't know, Reggie Jackson or something like that. And it doesn't necessarily mean you can't have a good team or a good offense. It's just about figuring out how to use those players and their skills. These uh these kind of four sort of stylistic categories or or, or, or sorry dimensions that you're, you're you're talking about how how correlated are they with uh, each other so are are there particular like you know, like is ball you know teams that tend to be I mean you're kind of portraying it like everybody has their own path to victory I guess 
but are there, you know, is ball movement, you know, relatively highly correlated with player movement? Are, are, are there certain dimensions, certain numbers of the sort of subsets of these dimensions that are pretty highly correlated with each other? Uh, I can't remember specifically off the top of my head. I did do that work last year. I don't think there was anything that was specifically dramatic. Um, if I remember, the strongest correlation was between player movement and ball movement, which kind of makes sense if you're running guys off screens and stuff and sort of trying to manipulate and create open space in different parts of the court. you got to have to you know, sort of swing the ball in opposite directions and then bring it back to where the player is. Um, but there, there weren't a lot of um, there weren't a lot of sort of obvious groupings, or there weren't a lot of sort of obvious clusters of styles. Every team sort of had a little bit uh, a little bit different. Uh, one of the things that I was interested in, I initially did this sort of four or five years ago, right as the Warriors were kind of coming into their own, was I was interested to see if teams were going to sort of progress towards the Warriors style, if that was going to sort of become this you know, the style du jour, and we were going to see teams sort of gravitate in that direction. And we did see a few teams like that. Um, the Hawks, um, the year that they had the five All-Stars and they won 60 games, they were sort of moving in that direction. Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers throughout this, you know, difficult uh process time while they've been waiting for Embiid to get healthy they definitely established that as their sort of dominant style up-tempo ball movement lots of three-pointers um and the Spurs originally when I did this work four or five years ago they played that same way too but uh we've seen teams migrate in different directions so the Spurs have sort of gradually withdrawn they've sort of gone the opposite direction bigger uh more post-ups more mid-range shots um you know they sort of have fit their personnel in an opposite direction. So there's been there's been evolution in in these styles. That that's interesting. I think that's against the the at least the superficial narrative that that people have been talking about for a couple of years now. And the emergence of you know the Rockets are kind of the paradigm, but then the Warriors win the national the the championship playing that way. That that is that is surprising. It surprises me anyway. I, I wonder to what extent it is um, because we weren't at equilibrium before. That you can't have everybody playing the same. That it's natural that that a, a oppositional style would emerge to counterbalance. And in fact, they're not independent. It emerged because of the previous emergence of the small ball. Yeah, I think that's I think that's certainly valid. And 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 some of this is sort of a tweak of uh, or a tweak of the measures. Um, I, when I do these measures. Uh, I'm doing them as percentile rank, so everybody's sort of ranked relative uh, to each other. So that's if the whole league was sort of evolving in one direction, um, it, it might not capture that in the same way. Right. But I, I think we've seen that with the Spurs, that they decided they weren't going to be able to beat the Warriors at their game, and right. then Owen Big offered offered a, a sort of an alternative route to to exploiting their weaknesses. So uh, we, we've talked some about the Warriors. It, you've, you've done some analysis on their blocks. They, they're blocking shots at high unexpectedly high rates but what the interesting wrinkle is that they don't they don't get called for as many fouls is that right is that the analysis and what's your explanation of that yeah they had um uh when i looked this year they had uh the lowest ratio that i could find of uh personal fouls per blocked shot uh, going back to 1973 um just 2.4 personal fouls per blocked shot and um it, it, that's an interesting uh, sort of component that we don't often think about with block shots. We've gotten better 
at thinking about rim protection analytically. Um, over the past couple of years, we can use things like looking at the um, the quantity of a team's shots that come around the rim when certain defenders are on the floor versus off the floor. Uh, we've got measures now where we can look at a team's uh, field goal percentage around the rim when a player is on the floor or off the floor. So that lets us know, um, it, it adds some information, you know, about maybe a player challenges a shot, doesn't necessarily block it, but challenges it enough for the player to miss it. Um, but including personal fouls, I think, is a really important component because, uh, you know, chasing block shots, trying to block a shot often results in a personal foul and a foul yields, uh, you know, a shooting foul yields a really high value um, offensive scoring opportunity for the other team. Um, I don't know specifically why the Warriors have been so good at this. Um, I, I'm sure a cynical fan would point out that, you know, they're the Warriors and they're the golden team in the NBA and they're getting the benefit of the doubt right. on a lot of these calls. Right. <laughs> but it may just be, you know, that their block shots are coming from players who are smaller, faster, sort of more skilled, you know, rather than a, a lumbering, you know, Greg Ostertag or something like that blocking shots. The, the Warriors who are really leading the team in, in rim protection are Draymond Green and Kevin Durant. And so, you know, sort of having these, these small ball guys, um, you know, they, they may be more adept at blocking shots without drawing fouls. It may be harder for the refs to see if they're, you know, fouling. They, they may just sort of be getting the benefit of the doubt by nature of physics and <laughs> being a little bit smaller, sort of looking different than traditional shot blockers. Um, but regardless of how it's happening, it really is a, a remarkable feat they're, they're, uh, they're putting up this year. Yeah, I was just going to build on this since uh, I now see this stat that you just reported. So I would never have guessed that Kevin Durant is leading the league in blocks. I would never have guessed. They actually, in this same ESPN table, they do have blocks divided by personal fouls. It's actually one of the columns in this table, so I've never seen that as a metric before used. He's actually second in the NBA. Um, Anthony Davis from the Pelicans. By the way, similar athletically in the sense that this isn't your Greg Oster tag, big lumbering <laughs> seven-footer. These are extremely athletic seven-footers. Those are the two top players, the only players in the NBA that are averaging more than one block per personal foul in the game. And so this is a great metric. I'm, you know, uh, have, have you seen others use it? Obviously ESPN cares a lot about it since they now actually have an entire table of blocks divided by personal fouls. I mean, presumably it should be included pretty highly in, in, in considerations for how good a defensive player a guy is. I, playing defense is multifaceted, but surely this is going into – these kind of calculations for overall defense for each player, no? Yeah, I mean, anything that's built off of, it might not be in there sort of explicitly as that ratio, um, but any sort of overall player metric that's built off of box score stats will include both blocks as a positive play and, and personal fouls as a negative play, um, sort of in, in calculating a player's value. I've seen it a few times. Uh, we have a guy who works for uh, Nylon Calculus, Justin Willard, and he's built um, a few different metrics. One's called Dredge, um, and it's an overall player, uh, player metric, and it uses um, – sort of non-traditional stuff that you can pull from play-by-play -play data and, and um, you know, assigns a value to some things we don't normally see. So, like, one is uh, drawing offensive fouls that are not charges. Um, 
I don't know. There's a few other things. I was, but anyway, that was the first place I saw it sort of as an, as an explicit measure of a player. And well, so, well, just to build his, on your just to build on your point, by the way, um, I just sorted this table by blocks divided by personal fouls. Back to your point, the Golden State Warriors have five of the top 20 players in the NBA on mm -hmm. this particular metric. Mm -hmm. Five of the top 20 on this particular metric, which is actually remarkable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so it's... Um, you know, it, it's a way to it adds some nuance to to this stat. So when Justin originally wrote the article about Dredge and he included this, he had he had some sort of historical comparisons, and he talked about Tim Duncan versus Dwight Howard. And uh, Dwight Howard, you know, has this whatever you think of him now. You know, he he had been a, tr a tremendous defender, won multiple Defensive Player of the Year awards, and he had one of the the worst um, block to foul ratios of of the big men in the sample, and Tim. Duncan, far less blocked shots than Dwight Howard, but a similar defensive reputation, and he had one of the best ratios. So I thought that was one of the interesting, an interesting sort of way to, to illuminate it. You know, Howard maybe has more blocks, but they may have been less valuable to his team overall than Tim Duncan. Right. We're talking to Ian Levy. Ian is senior NBA editor for fansided.com. He's also the man behind the curtain at the Step Back and Nylon Calculus. All those sites are great sites for advanced basketball analytics you can follow even ian on twitter at hickory high ian there's been so much advance in analytics in basketball what do you think is hardest right now what, what what's the what's the frontier what are they trying to understand empirically that they feel like they haven't been able to understand you know when you watch basketball sometimes um you know there there are things that you know are captured well in the stats and there are things that you feel like might not be well captured in the stats given how much stats have proliferated in basketball what's missing now what's what what are what are people finding hard uh i i think defense continues to be uh continues to be a challenge and a lot of that is just sort of the structural nature of defense you know good defense is often um outcomes that don't happen and so it's <laughs> it's hard to measure things that don't happen um and so yeah i think uh i, I think th th i think that's one of the the challenges that continues to be out there i think it's uh probably teams are a little bit ahead of of the work that's done in the public sphere i think um analytic departments for teams have some extra tools have some extra insights and and the ian what's an example of a tool that team a team might have that is not publicly available so the player tracking data that we have available um, on the, uh, you know, that's publicly available on the NBA site uh, is sort of a, a limited window of, uh, of what's called from those numbers. So it's, there are a handful of teams that actually receive the raw uh, player tracking data and do their own sort of work and permutations with that. And this, for anybody who's not familiar, this is, I think there's four cameras in every NBA arena. They take something like 25 frames per second and it converts it into digital data. So you get this spatial data so you can see, you know, how far from a shooter a defender was. Um, you can see, you know, how many dribbles they took, how many seconds they had the ball in their hand, all of these different things, um, you know, that sort of couldn't, couldn't be measured automatically before. Um, so anyway, what's publicly but, but, available is very slim. Teams it, have the have. Oh, go ahead. You're, you're saying that that only a handful of teams use these data. So that the, a only, team, oh, the raw data. Everybody. Ha Sorry. Go ahead. Only a handful use the raw data. Everyone else is 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 accepting whatever is processed and provided to them. But but a handful of teams are actually 
availing themselves of the full data stream. Is that right? But only a handful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, only a handful that I know of. And that's I think it's a sort of a significant investment in infrastructure, yeah. getting people. I mean, it's massive. It's a massive amount of data. Um, but there's sort of this intermediary. There's a company called Second Spectrum that yeah. now has the contract to work with this player tracking data. And they have um, they have all of these algorithms that they can run on the data that provide sort of a level of nuance above what's public. So like they have algorithms that can recognize like screens that are set in the data. So they can get, you know, sort of automatically called um, information like, you know, if, if a player rejects a screen, screen and dribbles left, you know, we can sort of parse the data in that direction, what the shooting percentage is or, or things of that nature. And so there's, there's a level of granularity that's available to teams for offense and defense that, that we don't have in the public sphere. Got it. Ian, what what do you make of what's going on in the, in the NBA this year? And how do you how do you understand the dynamics? You know, there were like forty games in, forty five games in. How do you understand the dynamics differently because of all the analysis that you do and have and have access to? Uh, it's harder to be a fan, I think, of specific teams and players. The more you um, the more you sort of work with data, the more you understand statistics and probability. Um, I mean, I was, I grew up as an Indiana Pacers fan. My aunt lived in Indianapolis and we used to go see Pacers games all the time when I was a kid. And it's hard to, um, it's hard to sort of generate the same emotional investment when you understand, you know, what, what their realistic chances are of, of, you know, winning a championship this year or in the next 10 years, um, oh, you know, sort of knowing what, what the, you know, what the, what the probabilities are, it, it makes it a little harder to sort of be invested in outcomes. So for me, it, it makes the, it makes the narratives much more interesting. It makes the aesthetics much more interesting. You know, you're, you're sort of conscious concentrating on, on one hand, you sort of look at the league as, as um, you know, a, a set of questions to ask or problems to solve, you know, sort of understanding why things are happening, uh, how things are happening. Um, and, and then we get these, you know, we get these nice couple points during the year, the trade deadline and the free agency in the summer where the dynamics are all of a sudden shifted really quickly. And, you know, how, how are Carmelo Anthony, Paul George, and Russell Westbrook going to work together? You well, know, how well, are Chris well, Paul and James Harden going to complement each let's other? Let's hear about those, Ian. So, so you know, the, the Thunder start out shaky, and then they make a great run, and now they've been, you know, kind of back down to average. What's your take on Oklahoma City? What do the, what do the numbers tell us about our expectations? What should our expectations be for the Thunder? Most of the statistical projections for the Thunder that I saw going into the year were a little bit below the sort of the general consensus. Um, I think that we have a few different people who do win projections with different systems at, at nylon calculus. And I don't think anybody had the thunder over 50 wins. Right. Uh, even with, even after the Carmelo Anthony deal, most of them had them in the high forties. Uh, so I think there was some concern statistically about like Carmelo Anthony's defense, um, how, how those three guys would sort of complement each other. Cause they had been, all had been such high usage and such, um, isolation scores they were sort of so used to having the ball in their hands um but i think you know we also sort of see these micro statistical issues where they were horrible horrible the first month month and a half of the season uh in late game scenarios and a lot of that looked like random noise and it kind of turned out to be random noise you know Mm -hmm. their record kind of uh, turned around a little bit there and, and sort of balanced out so they weren't as bad as they looked earlier in the year, and maybe they weren't quite as good as they looked when they kind of bounced back during that stretch. And, right. You know, the truth is kind of somewhere in the middle. Okay. Staying in the West, 
people talk about the Rockets making a run at the Warriors. They've had some success against them this year. They obviously are the, the second team in the West and just, just a neck, you know, just a little bit behind the Warriors. How do you see that playing out? Um, I think they're I think they're sort of clearly the second best team in the league. Um, I think it, it's tough because they had kind of uh, they had sort of started sliding even before Harden got hurt, and their defense earlier in the year was probably um, was probably better than their sort of true you know true level of performance or true uh, true ability level. So we sort of saw that regressing a little bit, um, but I think they. They just sort of have the most pieces, and I think that's what it's going to come down to in a matchup with the Warriors. You you need versatility, adaptability. You need to be able to try different things because the Warriors can come at you from so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think the Rockets sort of have the the best level of offensive versatility, the best level of defensive versatility, the best um, ability to sort of cobble together different kinds of lineups and, and sort of try and take care take advantage of different matchups. So, mm-hmm. yeah, if, if I was looking for anybody, it would be the Rockets. So, Ian, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, the team that I've been more bullish on, which hasn't really gotten into the discussion this year, are the Toronto Raptors. A couple things about the Raptors that you can see just from the basic statistics. First of all, they're leading the East in point differential, and it's not close. Um, they have exactly the same point differential, and interestingly, record as the Houston Rockets. The other stat I saw is that they are undefeated against the top five teams in the NBA. They have not lost to the Celtics, to the um, Cavaliers, the Rockets, the Golden State Warriors, or San Antonio. Do you put any stock in Toronto? Do they have any chance of getting out of the East and possibly even challenging it all? I think they have a good chance of getting out of the East, uh, the, and for what it's worth, we said a piece earlier this week at Nylon Calculus about how that, uh, you know, record against top teams or bottom teams turns out to be mostly noise, um, or, or is certainly not as, as predictive as it looks. But the Raptors have evolved a lot this year. Their offense is going back to the offensive style discussion, a lot more ball movement, a lot more player movement, and it's resulted in a lot of catch and shoot three pointers. My question for them is like, is DeMar DeRozan gonna gonna hold up uh, shooting threes at 36, 37 percent where he's been for the past few weeks? And then they their bench has been fantastic. Their depth has been a real strength for them. But there's a lot of young guys uh, in that group um, that you know. I I don't know. I just I sort of want to see them. That they've melted down in the playoffs so many times the past few years. They look different structurally. Um, their system looks different this year, but there's there's just as many sort of question marks and variables in their in their roster. So I think they have as good a chance as anybody of coming out of the East. But I'd still pick the Warriors, you know, over them by a wide margin, and I'd probably pick Houston over them too. Ian, another team in the East that's at the top of the East right now, the Celtics. People are always interested in those guys. Um, obviously, they had a big injury up front. They seem to have done pretty well, even given the injury. But they they raise an interesting question for analysts because Brad Stevens is widely thought of as one of the best coaches, maybe the best coach, possibly, um, and a young guy, still relatively new to the league. How how much progress are, have you analysts made on understanding coaching and coaching contributions and, and what – if we could put a plus minus on Brad Stevens, what would it be? 
we've not made a lot of progress in that area. There's a famous uh, Dave Barry study from, I don't know, maybe, maybe even a decade ago now, uh, looking at NBA coaches. And I think what he found is there's maybe like three or four coaches who have a, a measurable positive effect. And it was like Phil Jackson, Greg Popovich, and I can't remember who else, two other Hall of Famers probably. And everybody else, it's kind of like it, it sort of doesn't matter. Um, certainly seems like Stevens could be on that tier. Uh, you know, he's he's great uh, strategically. Uh, his X's and O's are phenomenal. He comes up with these amazing, you know, after timeout plays that, that get them great looks. Uh, they, he's been great at developing young players the time he's there. That's another thing we would sort of look at incidentally, young players and their, their developmental tracks. And then he just seems like a good motivator. You know, you don't hear about locker room strife or things of that nature with the team. Everybody seems like they're on the same page and, and playing hard. The problem with measuring the value of coaches is you get such a small sample size, you know, a guy like Nate McMillan for the Pacers, um, you know, he's he's a, a veteran coach by modern standards. He's coached like nine seasons, but never more than three or four seasons at a time with any specific team. And, you know, with, with so much player movement, there's sort of so many variables that it's it's almost sort of too noisy to, to weed out the value of the coach from, from all those other all those other variables. You know, that that's this what you said there at the end surprises me. I would have thought that the player movement would be helpful in weeding out the impact of the coach because we see these players in different systems. Isn't that exactly yeah, what you Yeah, almost the know? ideal designed experiment would be you'd scramble the players every year. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you just have the, the the interaction variables, you know, of the other players with themselves. and, and um, Sure. Yeah, I don't sure, know. Sure, sure. Um, well, it's, it's always surprising. You know, they talk about there's a there's an organization with college football's um, analytics who really kind of shifted into coaching analytics and it's, and I know it's increasingly used in coaching searches, but and as as advanced as we are with basketball analytics, I don't know it'd be a little surprising that that there's not more attention given to that because you know named a number of things about Brad Stevens, some of which we can put measures on, some of which. I don't know if anyone's even trying to put measures on, but there's a lot. I mean, gosh, these guys are valuable, right? It'd be worth knowing what yeah. the contribution is or if there's a contribution from some of these guys. Yeah, and that's another one of those things. I mean, we have this sort of this rift in basketball analytics between what's done in the public sphere and what's done in the private sphere. And right. It's possible that, that teams have done a bunch of work on this and uh, you know maybe have a lot more answers that you know they're just not sharing. Right, right. All right. Well, listen, Ian, thank you for taking the time and joining us. Thanks for the work that you're doing. We wish you the best with with the rest of the basketball season. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. You bet. That was Ian Levy. Ian is senior NBA editor for Fansided.com. He's also uh, the man behind the curtain at The Step Back and Nylon Calculus. These are great sites for basketball analytics. They're great follows on Twitter. His personal follow on Twitter is at Hickory High. Again, that was Ian Levy. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Audie's back. Going to be with us for the semester. And all time, just back from his, <laughs> his fall sabbatical. Yeah, Until the you're next locked sabbatical. in now. Who's, uh, who's in the now. next on the sabbatical agenda? Shane and I have gone. And, uh, I'm going to be next up. I'm going to take one again before you guys do it. <laughs> it's a good gig. It's a good gig. Eric is taking a sabbatical from the show, apparently. He'll be back. 
rolling back into the studio, I suspect, before things are over. You want to join the conversation, you can. Open lines for this last half hour, one eight four four wharton one 942 7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Email is a especially great way to reach us if you're hearing us one of the times that we're replayed. Four or five times over the course of the week we're replayed. You want to reach out to us on a Friday, we're happy to take an email. We'll get back to you maybe even live on the air. That's, again, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Our guests have Twitter handles. We have Twitter handles. You can follow us at WMoneyBall. We are increasingly active up there if you want to help follow the world of sports analytics. Guys, uh, what is going on? It's, it feels, I mean, it's a peak time in NFL, but otherwise. That's as, it? As you, I, mean, I mean, that's it. Exactly. I mean, college, is, college football is done. College basketball has been Winter kind Olympics of going are on. coming up. How about the Winter Olympics? How excited, well, if you're excited about Well, the I mean, you know, I, I'm usually quite excited for the Winter Olympics because of the, 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 the hockey, hockey, but uh, the NHL players aren't playing in it even this time. So that makes it less How compelling. How did that transpire? You know, union kind of like negotiations. You know, I mean, mostly teams didn't want to basically lend Give their players the for the Olympics. Because the season's in the... And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, basketball has the advantage that they play in the Summer Olympics, which is not during the actual NBA season. So why is it different this year, Shane? Why is it... Oh, no, this is an issue every, every year. year. And, I mean, like, it, it, it's part of what, you know, like... you. Know, I mean, NHL players, you know, only started playing, I think, in... Uh, Trying to think two thousand or something like well, that. Yeah, be, I mean, like it was so. So I mean, like it, it, it's it, it's been an issue ongoing. Thing. It used to be amateur, yeah, yeah and then ended. So tell yeah. me, so tell us, so who's going to play? Well, amateurs. I mean, juniors. It's it's going to be like it's going to be a you know for those of you that follow hockey closely, it's going to be a really neat evaluation of kind of the younger like but you call, know call they the essentially have like under twenty one teams, kind of like they do with uh with uh soccer. But in the aren't, isn't hockey's like baseball and that the young guys get drafted and paid pretty early, don't they? The best ones. Oh, I think it's actually not. Yeah. Um, though, I mean, you can still assemble some pretty exciting hockey teams from, you know. Yeah, sort of maybe like it's just, a, maybe like just the top guys. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm curious whether, I mean, well, maybe. maybe it, it, it might go. be something where it's just under tw- restricted to under 21, but they can but be hold, professional. Yeah, they can be. That, with yeah. The amateur thing went yeah. away. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably yeah I, minor, I think it's just an under 21 The thing, minor though. league teams probably don't care. They, yeah. They're happy to lend their players. Yeah, yeah. They evaluate them even. That's right. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, what else? But my experience with the Olympics is always that ahead of time, I'm not that. I'm not that excited, but once it happens, yeah, no, it's just exciting, and it's always fun to sort of see. I mean, you know, kind of some of the things we just kind of pretend are sports, like every four years, like that thing. Well, curling's for real, but like, I I mean, curling, like let's not let's let's not get this on tape. You don't know this. Let's let's not uh, let's not denigrate the billiards of ice here. We we, (laughs) that makes it so much more compelling. Uh, Matt, we need a curling guest. We had one. We had one a few years ago, and this is. And it wasn't it for is, the Olympics. It is the season, This man. is the season we, I mean, we need to let's, talk let's, curling. No, I mean, it is fun watching. Uh, curling's great in part because, too, because, you know, at the opening ceremonies, you have all the athletes walk in, right? And usually, like, athletes look like athletes. They're, like, young and very <laughs> athletic and all those things. And then the curlers are walking in with the team, and it's, like, a bunch of, like, 60-year-old. <laughs> with big bellies. Do, yeah, dudes that, like, look like, you know, they, they you just kind of grabbed them out of a bar on the way to the stadium. I mean, it feels like there are parts of the country where people go curling like we might go to a bar. Like Shane yeah. and I might go to bar. I, I used to, do, I, I used to curl. Yeah, it's it's a party, man. It, it, it's really fun. You're it's, hanging it's out with a, your friends. Were you and a groomer? Or what, what are the different tasks? Well, you shift off. I, okay. I mean, like, so every player that pl- curls, uh, well, you, you, you've 
got four people on your team and every person throws two stones. And uh, when you're not throwing one of the people throwing the stone, you are one of the broomers. broomers. You have to really be good at everything. So it's a oh, really, yeah, no, I mean, it's multifaceted, <laughs> multifaceted, but definitely skill based, not athleticism based. Right. So why is All this right. an Olympic sport? Ah, uh, well, because they need a lot of sports in the Olympics. <laughs> I mean, why is this thing where you ski and then shoot a target and then ski some more <laughs> yeah, and then shoot another target? Why is that a sport? I, I mean, know. once we go down Come this on, road, man. no, that's hunting. That's that's like that's like uh, that's. Or I mean, distance. like the summer Olympics, they've got that ribbon twirling thing, right? Oh, no, right, they do. A, they have all this all these different versions of synchronized. You know, and, and all these different versions of synchronized swimming. I mean, like yeah, you know, all I'm saying is in the in the in the hierarchy of sportness among Olympic sports, the biathlon or whatever you just named is way high. Only it's, because, again, you think about it for athleticism, because it's more athletic. But than why isn't than, chess a sport then at the Olympics? If we're going to extend it. I mean, let's answer that. So your yeah. argument is it should be. Do you, what well, do you think? Well, I mean, I don't know I don't, if it should be. I mean, I'm just saying that we've already kind of, you know, the this, the Olympics takes a very broad view of what the well, word sport indeed. means. Indeed. I mean, right? so let me, I mean, let me push something into your area, something that something that we have neglected on this show. Video games. Yeah. I'm e-sports. reading about these. I mean, it'll probably have its own Olympics. Million dollar prize. I mean, you, yeah. you can make no, there's going to be a national na, a national league in Overwatch, for example, which is one of the more compelling of these e- esports. Is a huge thing. Yeah. Most people don't yeah. know about it, but there'll it's, be its, its own Olympics. It's going to be its own thing. It, it's it's money making already. There are there are degree programs in, in fifteen years when we're all just hooked up to VR like headsets in our home. <laughs> this is all we will be watching. In fact, <laughs> okay. Other than That's hockey, bold. other than hockey and curling, what are you most looking forward to about Winter Olympics? And is there an analytics? Well, where, okay. where do analytics okay, so, most come Okay, so I'll tell you a little. I'm going to look forward. I'm going to push a, a future segment that we haven't yet concocted. I got called from John Templin. John uh, wrote this interesting article. He was the one who uncovered the the match fixing in tennis using okay. pure data analysis. Okay. And he's doing a, another piece on on uh, biases in judges. I mean, there was a whole scandal where the French and the Russian judges and sure. figure skating. Sure. Um, the judges are biased in well, the Olympics? Well, we know they are, but the question is to, <laughs> There's to nationalism involved? What? <laughs> so, so he's trying to, uh, to use the data to... Uh, Assess how serious that that is as a problem. So um, they've, they've every few years they do something different to try to minimize this, right? Yeah. So they but like one was to hide the well, yes. So they've tried a few things. Uh, they've now made the there's some public data now on who's rating what. They used to keep it secret. You wouldn't wow. know who, wow. who rated who. Wow. Mm. Okay. So you're going to be in, so. Audi, so I Audi, just helped him. Audi do the moonlights yeah. as as a as a, a litigation consultant. Even well, this on, is a, yes, this I isn't, do. This isn't litigation. This isn't litigation. Investigative. This is, this is journalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what do you have any early analysis on this? Uh, well, yes. I mean, so basically, the, the, issue, is the, the issue is is how do you how do you appropriately <laughs> measure it, and, and, and how sure are you uh, sure. of of what it, what's going on, and how big it is. Right. So the the techniques of measuring it are pretty straightforward, um, and that's a future conversation. the The issue is how big is it, and in some cases, it looks fairly large. The does it, the real question is does it does it throw a competition and of course that depends on how close it is right so they tend to be close in the Olympics and they tend to be close so I so I think what they're really trying to do is sh- uh, shed light on on it and mm-hmm. the idea being sunlight is the greatest disinfectant so once you're done with that can you guy can you and this journalist aim at like the dog shows I mean talk about a racket that can't yeah be. That can't be objective. It can't be. That's no. True. It's a single person the, just deciding it all, one, man. It's, it's the only thing more yeah. subjective than figure skating judges. That's right. That's right. And I'm not sure why the dog show is not in the Olympics. <laughs> well, right? horses, horse, horse, it, horse ra- it, horses are in the Olympics. It, it doesn't involve human beings. Horse dancing is in the Olympics, <laughs> and that's on the horse, right? 
They have horse dancing Shame. in the Olympics. So what are you looking forward to in the, Olymp- the Winter Olympics? He doesn't. We don't. Hockey's not interesting because it doesn't have professionals. Well, figure still, skating is interesting. It's, I think it's ironically still the most interesting thing in the Olympics. It's just less interesting no, I think than figure usual. Skating my, is beautiful. My, my, figure skating. I, come my on. Experience with, <laughs> my, wait, experience, you, my experience with the Olympics, both winter and summer, is it kind of doesn't matter. You know, you just you turn it on, and there's yeah. something there that's compelling. They've gotten pretty good at producing these things. Oh yeah. And so whatever. It, it, it's uh, something. Somebody doing something you can't do, and they're doing it for your country, so you somehow feel some kind of. Thing fun, there no? too. Yeah, it's, yeah. Did you guys talk? It's a whole about, thing. I, I'm sorry, I had to step out for our yeah. fans for a second. Did you talk about two things that were interesting with both ice skating in the Olympics, where in in one's case the in ice skating in the Olympic trials, they actually picked people in an order that was different than their actual performance in the trials. So you want to talk about subjectivity. Even after the subjectivity, that's just one factor in how the committee decides who goes to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So that to me was shocking. Yeah, I didn't this know. Isn't speed on the skating? men's side, no, no, no. On figure skate, on um, you know, what they, the one where they do the jumps. They don't just take the top three. They do not. They're not obligated to. There was on a debate. What basis? It's like the Riders' Cup. No, no, captain's no, choice. No, no, no. Let's let's be a statisticians for a second. They have a body of work for the skater. Uh, the committee. Then why have the championship? Because it's, it's another more, piece, it's another data people point. people will go watch it, I guess. Some so that people, was that was one know. thing. The other point is, I don't know if you guys talked about the probably the most accomplished woman uh, now participating in the Olympics, which is the downhill skier. I, I forget her first name. Schifrin is the last name. She's now like almost about to break the record for the most downhill ski win. She's already an Olympic gold medalist, like five-time world champion. So when I think about the Olympics, I am thinking about the possibility of someone, you know, an American woman being maybe the greatest downhill skier of all time. And so that, to me, is something that, you know, when we talk about... Who is currently the greatest downhill skier of all time? I I think that's a good question. I can't even think of a downhill... (laughs) Name a downhill skier of all time. Franz Klemmer. No. (laughs) All right. Ingemar Stenmark. You win the prize. Phil Meyer, the, the Meyer the, brothers? Yes, the Meyer yeah, brothers. I remember so, them. But so, guys, this connects, Bodie Miller. Connects back, Bodie Miller Bodie from Miller. the US. This connects back to the show because we we had an analyst on here. He's since moved, but the, the Ski and Snowboard Association went to Australia and poached the sports science guy from the Australian swimming team to work with the US Ski and Snowboard. And we had him on the show a mm-hmm. good few years ago now, and he talked about how they brought sports science, and they and he he may be biased, but he believes that it was a major factor in moving the U.S. ski and snowboard team from being kind of middling as an international competitor to arguably the best program in the world. And it's because they've gotten better. So, for example, they did things like we're not going to give the same training program to all of our, say, slalom skiers. Even though they're doing the same competition, they're different people. They have different physiology. We're going to measure them precisely enough that we can tailor the program. And some people are going to work differently than other people, even though they have the same competition. That was a major revolution. That's the that's fundamental sports science. But they weren't doing that even, I don't know, 10 years ago. Well, I think it also, I agree with you, and it relates to Shane's point, which is, you know, let me go back to my, I'm going to try to make an analogy here. Maybe it's a weak one. Would you rather have one player at 11 Sigma or 11 players at one? When the U.S. or any country invests in Olympics, thinks about the ROI of their spend, they'd rather have one breakout big star that's watchable, that raises either the TV ratings, the profile, etc., then have, you know, would you rather have one bronze, one gold, or three bronze? Or would you rather have one gold record holder that breaks the world record, that's on every... There's no question they're investing in the right tail of the distribution. They want someone that's going to be the once-in-a-lifetime person that they can put up there as the face and that they can sell it. 
So clearly we're going to have some things to talk about this winter, even in the absence of college football, amazingly. But we still have a little football time to, 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 to spend. So, guys, this is the time every week we look at the NFL. Of course, this week there are only four games. There are only seven games left in the season. There are four this weekend. So let's just talk about each in turn and see what you guys think about it. We'll take them in order. Do we have the order of the games? Saturday afternoon. Who do we got on Saturday afternoon? The the afternoon game is the Eagles and the Falcons. That's the 430 game on Saturday. Okay, so what do we know about this game? The the Eagles-Falcons, it looks like the... Falcons, shockingly, this is the first time a divisional host has been an underdog. The Falcons are the favorite. They're traveling to Philadelphia, but it's about a three-point line. Do I have that right? It, that yeah. is the betting line. So what do you guys take on? What's your take well, on this Well, I was going to ask you about this, Cade. So um, thanks to Matt Dats, our producer, one of the outputs we got was that the Eagles, according to the at least to the ELO rating system, maybe it's true under Massey Peabody, who's the favorite? Well, ELO doesn't take account quarterback shift, so okay, no, no. I'm just, I, so that's possible. But I'm saying right now, who does Massey Peabody have as the favorite in that game? It, game in the game is played in Philadelphia. Because it's in Philadelphia, we have the Eagles, which the, the, it's really Making tough. Making them a I mean, big play, is, huh? It's, it's just really I, tough to adjust for quarterbacks, especially when you've had half a season under one quarterback and half a season under a different quarterback, and they're very differently able I know, but this is what very, you, I understand. Very it's very challenging, but this is what caught my eye. The betting line has the Falcons, if they were on a neutral field— Right, the Falcons would be a six-point favorite according to the Vegas betting line. They're a yeah. three-point favorite here in Philadelphia, essentially. The all the statistical models, which are struggling to adjust for Wentz versus Foles, have the Eagles as a two-point favorite. So we're talking about, you know, I know you guys always it's think three to four. Swing, yeah. This is a massive yeah. swing. I mean, I'm a saying ma- five, they think it's five more than we do. Exactly, but, but but we are we recognize that this is very hard, especially in particular with this situation where half of the offensive output this season. Was under one quarterback and half under. But you have the option of changing your your value, and you're not. No, we do change values. It's right. just so, really hard to get it right. It's so, really hard to get it but right. They're but they're going with five points better for for Atlanta than you are, yeah. and that's a huge difference. It is, and I, I mean, if I my recommendation is not to bet this game because I think it's really hard to ascertain. Even as as you have to know when your model's not right, and yeah. I think a good modeler knows when their model is at least more uncertain. More variance than, yeah. you, than you're yeah. happy with, and this typically. Is, this is one of those. And I think also we talked about it this in the first half hour and also with our uh, Michael Salfino, our guest. Eagles are going to have to. We're going to find out. No, we're not just going to find out. We're going to find out how good the Eagles' coaching staff is, because in a sense, because they're going to have to find a way to make it so that Nick Foles doesn't have to win the game. Yeah. So, what strategies do they take? Maybe it's you know they run the ball a lot more with you know Ajahi and other people, but they're going to have to find a way so that it's not Foles throwing forty times and let's hope he's great. Anybody going to take the the Eagles here? Is everyone going to take the Falcons? Uh, well, are we taking with the spread? Are we t- Either or? way. Both ways. Dan Loney says Eagles, by the way. So you're getting three. You're I'll getting, take the Eagles. I'll take the Eagles. You're, you're at home and getting three. I'll take the Eagles. You called the Falcons last week. That was a brilliant call. Oh, I, mean, I know. It, I, know. I, was, I thought I know. of you over the weekend. Shane said last week, I think the Falcons are going to go in and take the Rams. Yep. And they did it. Just, What's at stake? No money? Just pride? Just pride. Yeah, Can't take the Eagles. I mean, what's, and what's, so I've, I've, what's at stake I've, with I'm any still of this? Really? Sti- I'm still, st- yeah, really, that's true. <laughs> right. I'm, okay, st- I'm, we got, we got I'm still sticking with the Falcons to go to the Super Bowl okay. in the yeah, NFC. I, I, I like, I like Matty Ryan and the Falcons here. So uh, let's talk about the uh, the evening game. I, I believe the Patriots Titans. Oh God! Okay, we can do this one quickly. 
Uh, I is think the Patriots to say, will win. Anything to say about it? The, the line is the line it's is almost fourteen. Okay, thirteen. Yeah, and a thirteen. Half. Uh, we make it thirteen. We're <laughs> right. We're game. right on top of it. Let's, so that's let's, about a sixteen percent chance. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. Eighty-five, fifteen. Yeah. 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 There we it's go. One standard deviation. Yeah. yeah. Right there. 14. It is. Okay. Yeah. It, moving on to Sunday, the first game is the Jacksonville Pittsburgh. Well, game. I already thought right? you know, thirty I, to nine. I think Jacksonville takes Pittsburgh. Oh Honestly. wow! There's the there's Shane's upset of the week. You're a matchup Shane's guy. upset of the you're week. You're a matchup Jag, guy then. That, Jag, Jaguars against. Is it fair to assume yeah, that you, right. you actually put value in the matchup? I do actually. Okay. I do. Well, is let me ask you a question. Is the reason you're saying that because you must think, and this is not a bad thing, Jacksonville has an extraordinary in your view defense. That's correct. And that especially at the cornerback position, which is the strength of you know with Bryant and uh, you know. At, uh, the uh, Brown yeah, yeah. and Juju Schuster. Yeah. You think the Jaguars just the matchup? They'll be not shut down. They'll be able to slow down the receivers. So you like the Jaguars? Yeah, defense and I, th- a lot. I think I think the offense though. Bill, the Bills were. I, I think the Pittsburgh defense is not as good as the Bills defense. So I, I think I think I think Jacksonville will have uh, more productivity on the offensive side. I think just enough to win. I think this one could be like nine six or something like that. But, but it, puts away, it wow. would it would not surprise well it would not surprise you if this were within a seven point game either yeah, way. Yeah, that's so right. This, guys, I'm, I think not, it will be I'm not paying that much attention. But Levon Bell and Antonio Bryant, this is and Roethlisberger is still playing. That's those that one two punch is damn near unrivaled in the NFL. And you're saying now Jaguars are going to shut them down. I think and the Jaguars. I mean, I mean I'm not, well, yeah, and I'm not saying that it's going to be an easy endeavor to shut them down. Well, but I think Jacksonville does have the personnel just to quick, do that. I have to look more deeply because one thing I heard was you know maybe the cornerbacks of Jacksonville shut them down. Um, Antonio Brown, everyone agrees, the best wide receiver in the league, had ten catches for 160 yards the first time they played. I want to know how Pittsburgh only scored nine points uh, when Antonio Brown threw like four interceptions, and he could do it again. Five. All right. Five interceptions the wow. first time. Well, All okay. right. Well, I would, that, that would do it. I would not be sorry to see him throw five more interceptions. Okay. Probably <laughs> the game of the weekend. New Orleans goes up to Minnesota. Two teams. We 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 make them number four and number two. We have Minnesota number two in the league. New Orleans number four. The line for this game is four points. Who do you like? Well, I think this goes back to, you know, has New Orleans learned its lesson? And what I mean by that is, if New Orleans tries to be unidimensional in the game and just you know we're going to be have we're going to have the three hundred and fifty yard Drew, that's not happening against this Viking defense. So we're going to see whether New Orleans is balanced enough with running with Ingram and Kamara. Mm-hmm. We're going to see whether they're balanced enough. I'm going to stick. I'm going to go with defense. I'm going to go with the Vikings in this yeah. game, and I like the Vikings. In my case, I like the Vikings and the Falcons playing in the NFC Championship game. I kind of like the Vikings in this game too. I mean, obviously, the uncertainty I have is 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 you know this is Case Keenum's first playoff game, and he's looked very impressive throughout the season. And they're obviously a very well coached team, but you know it's it's his first playoff game, so we'll just kind of see what happens there. But I I I, I think the Vikings win. I also, I also go with the Vikings. I don't. I I don't. I don't necessarily put much credence in this first time in playoffs experience stuff. I think. Yeah, it's, I mean, how how would how would experience story. in the playoffs possibly like help you in for, further playoff games? <laughs> right. Well, so, it's confounded with being a very good quarterback, for example. Well, right. And, so, so if you that. want to paraphrase this, is we're <laughs> less sure that Case Keenum's a good quarterback. If that's you want, true. If you that, want to interpret definitely. my statement that way, okay. Kate, Kate, who do you like? You didn't tell us who you like in that no, game. No, we like, we like Minnesota. It's not quite an edge, but we think it's pushing six points. But I'm pulling for the Saints. It's the only team left that I care about at all. Because, I mean, Drew Brees is a great come story. Come on. Yeah, no, you don't want... You, 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 I'll pull against Pittsburgh. 
That's, against, that, yeah. that's the thing I feel strongest about. By the way, about. the only thing I, I can get behind that, we can, yeah, we can all get behind that. The only thing I would say is just to show you how great Drew Brees is, he has 70,000-plus passing yards, Drew Brees. And, I mean, maybe he's, he's going to slow down, but, I mean, he may shatter the record. He may end up with eighty five or 90,000 passing yards in his career. Go Drew Brees. Good yeah, story. Brady's right. right behind him. Fellas, that has been another two hours here at Wharton Moneyball. We do it every Wednesday. Come back and join us next week, 8 to east, eight to 10 Eastern. This is Cade. I was hosting this morning with Shane, Adi, and Eric. We had a great time. Thank you to Danielle Bruno, our sound engineer, Matty Datz, our producer, Dion Simpkins, associate producer, in the back somewhere going to town on those bonbons. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>